0: Today's topic is a tall Irishman. Not an unheard of entity, mind you, but unusual for his day, and any other before or since. He continued to distinguish himself after he grew to his height, ending up immortalized in a portrait housed in Berlin. Career highlights included joining the Prussian army, going into Berlin business, and eventually joining the King's Court. And yet, what does his Wikipedia entry say? James Kirkman. Irish giant. Welcome to Persona, stories about exceptional people. Being tall is vastly overrated. If you are tall, you are virtually guaranteed chronic back pain sooner or later, along with joint trouble, difficulty buying shoes, clothes don't fit, and you hit your head all the time. Also, a decent portion of the population treat you like a freak. The only consolation prize is the chance of making millions of dollars by leveraging your height into a basketball career. That's really the only place where having an extraordinary amount of height is a real advantage. An American who is born seven foot or taller has a 17 percent chance of joining the NBA, compared to a 0.001 percent chance for those six feet or taller. Now, yes, you still have the pains and troubles of a tall person, and That choice of career will accelerate and exacerbate some of those issues, but did I mention the millions of dollars? That option hasn't always been available to heightened folks. The vertical outliers had very few career options other than circus freaks and guys that you employ to reach the top shelf back before Naismith invented hoops. But one such opportunity did arise in 18th century Prussia. The king at the time, Frederick Wilhelm I, was an unusual person. On the one hand, he was one of the most puritanical Calvinist rulers in Europe. You might call him classically German. He banned the theater and forced austerity upon his subjects and himself, converting half the palace into offices to reduce government waste. He even sold the carpet his dad had put in to fit the austere and spartan theme. He'd inherited a country deeply in debt from his father, so it's understandable why he'd swing the other direction. He wanted to get things back to where he felt they should be, so very little money went to the arts or society and taxes were fairly high. To Frederick, everything was either practical or useless. His reign was probably the origin of many German stereotypes but he was more than willing to shell out for the military. It's estimated that something like 60 or 70% of the national budget went to the defense of the realm. So far, so normal, though, right? A German king who spends more on muskets than streetlights or Shakespeare isn't that strange. He'd be considered very conservative, but nothing mentioned so far was outside the norms. The thing is... He was also insane. Owing to some hereditary disorders, he had gout, swelling, and purple urine, and was in constant distress because of those. This, understandably, made him irritable, contributing to some manic episodes where his mental health had clearly deteriorated. His especial trigger word was France. Again, he was classically German. Hearing it, or any French word would make him fly into a rage, hit people who had said it, things like that. It's a wonder Franco-Prussian relations failed as much as they did during his reign. But for as crazy as he was, though, he wasn't a classic mad king, right? He didn't erect statues of his nose or try to get his horse into parliament. On a national administration level, he kept things quite practical, level-headed, stable. The one outlet for his madness, really, other than hitting people who said France and um, playing pranks on his friends, including he had a fat friend that he used to enjoy uh, getting drunk and then lowering him with a rope onto the river to try to break the ice, That uh, you know, the river had frozen over, he'd lift him carefully out the window by a rope, watch the ice crack as he unconsciously was lift, uh, dropped onto the ice. Yeah, anyway, the other outlet for his madness was the Potsdam Giants, known among Berliners as the King's Longfellows. We might call them, well, historically they might be called lifeguards. Nowadays they'd be called the King's bodyguard. They were an elite unit uh, made of members six foot three or taller. They were considered so elite, in fact, that they never fought a battle, as the King felt that they would be wasted in war. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive, to have a regiment so high-class that you could never use it, refer back to the earlier statement about the king's mental health. He didn't process things in this arena perfectly logically. Their sole duty was protecting the monarch at his palace. The unfortunate thing was that Potsdam had a shortage of tall people. (laughs) So the king set up a crack team of scouts to find tall people all over Europe much like the NBA does today. Now this Giants unit was not historically unique. Napoleon's bodyguards had to be at least six feet tall. A lot of elite units still had a height requirement, uh, even to this day, like the Swiss Guards at the Vatican. There is a logic to it. When people come to your palace, you want them to be impressed and intimidated. It's the same reasoning behind grand halls with the graphic paintings or etchings of your military exploits that hang in them. You're sending a message that you're not to be trifled with, that you are dangerous, that you are powerful. Big dudes are inherently scary, especially since, well, back then, most world leaders were quite short. But the tall guys were that concept taken to an illogical extent. Firstly. Everyone knew that most of the members were not from Prussia, so it felt artificial from the start. It wasn't a real intimidation tactic because nobody would believe that your country was made up of these giants because even your elite unit wasn't made up of Prussian giants. In addition to scouts, foreign leaders were another source of tall stock. The Tsar uh, Tsar of Russia sent 15 giants in a trade one time. Anytime you wanted something from Frederick, you just rounded up a few fellows aloft and ship them off to Berlin with a self-addressed envelope attached in which Frederick would deposit whatever you demanded. The king couldn't say no. He once said that his obsession with tall soldiers was the reason he didn't need a mistress. It was really his main pleasure and fixation in life was just collecting tall guys to hang around. (laughs) His agents also tried to kidnap any lofty man they found who didn't agree to join of his own free will, even temporarily holding the ambassador of Austria as he tried to get into a cab. He was released, presumably after a number of threats from the angry Austrians, and angry Austrians sure know how to get Germans to do what they want. I mean, just imagine visiting Berlin back then. It must have seemed like a Monty Python sketch. A bunch of Germans running around trying to chase down unusually tall people and force them to put on a uniform, all to please a king who goes crazy when anyone mentions the word France. It's an absurd time period to live in. I mean, any more absurd than the time period we live in now? No, but, you know, (laughs) another one. It's at this point that you probably wonder, why did anyone go along with this? It was ludicrous, not to mention highly unethical two things that you need to remember. One, people didn't see slavery as quite the evil that we do these days. Actually, a lot of people nowadays don't see it as the evil we do nowadays. Research shows that there's more slaves today than ever before. But Second, this is Germany we're talking about. In Prussia, authority was obeyed. And, you know, that's been part of the German culture for a long time. Not to say that it's exclusively a German trait, or that Germans are always like that, but it is common. It's more common in Germany than in other places. It's what allows them to be comfortable and efficient when working within systems. It's also what allows them to say, hey the king said he wants tall guys so I'm going to do whatever it takes to get one. Authority is obeyed. Another reason the tall fellows didn't really make sense was because they were not soldiers. Not good ones, anyway. See, these guys, they were just too tall. The king wasn't happy with guys that were pretty tall. He wanted ones that were unnaturally tall. Like, some of the tallest men in the world were brought to Potsdam, put in a uniform, and joined the lifeguards. We're talking 8 foot tall in shoes tall. That's 2.4 meters. If you've ever met someone of that size, you know the physical strain of that existence. The human body doesn't seem built to be that size. It's straining the limits of the form. That's far too tall to be carrying weapons, doing drills, marching, you know, any of the things you require of a soldier. Many of them were also mentally challenged. That's why they were as tall as they were, because they had some pretty serious genetic disorders that also inhibit brain function. And almost all of them were depressed. They were living as the king's toy or plaything, many of them against their own will. Sometimes he would paint their faces if they weren't rosy enough, like literally, he'd walk up with a paintbrush and, you know. Imagine this man, this short, privileged madman of a king, walking up to you, a person who is supposed to guard the life of that man, while he paints your face red to match a painting he just made of you, his giant toy soldier. Overall, it was just humiliating. In summary, this was a terrible idea because, one, they were basically slaves, therefore unmotivated to do the jobs they were brought in for. Two, they were constantly humiliated, lowering morale to about where yours is after you watch that video of the starving polar bear. You know where he's dragging his face on the ground and he's all, man, that was depressing. Number three. They were terrible soldiers for the same reasons they were supposed to be great soldiers. The king thought tall guys were good soldiers. They're not. Average height guys are the best soldiers, maybe a little bit taller than average, but not seven foot six or however tall they were. It was in this strange lifestyle that our person found accidental employment. James Kirkman was a six-foot-11 Irishman from County Longford, or he might have been seven-foot-two or six-foot-eight. My sources couldn't agree. Apparently, he came from Scottish or English stock. His last name definitely being not Irish. Kirk means church in Scottish Gaelic, Gaelic, not Gaelic. There's a difference. Scottish Gaelic and uh, old Yorkshire dialect back before the poison and Gravy set in. And uh, man means well man. Living in London in the 1720s, he came to the attention of the king's man in Britain, Caspar von Borcke. The king and Caspar corresponded in equestrian code, as recruiting soldiers in another country was illegal. It probably still is, come to think of it, back then it was more illegal. The king said he would spare no expense to have this Irish specimen in his stables. Kirkman probably didn't know about the brute squad he was being scouted for, it hadn't yet reached the apotheosis of its fame. In his dealings with Prussian representatives, he got the impression, i.e. they lied and told him, that he was being hired to be a footman, a butler for the ambassador, the Prussian ambassador to England. Still, he somehow figured out that he was in demand and started rising, raising his price. Maybe he imagined that he would make an excellent butler. Hey man, bet on yourself, right? After some negotiation, his price was set at £1,000, plus annual expenses. £1,000 is about £120,000 in today's money, according to the National Archives, who store this information for some reason. It would have taken a skilled tradesman 11,111 days to earn that much, according again to the National Archives, who again publish that information for some undisclosed purpose. In addition to all that elevation, then, Kirkman appears to have had a head on top. Not that he had the most canny person to bargain against, but it was a decent haul for a guy in his position, who could have come away with just being kidnapped instead. He was carried off to Potsdam, which didn't go unnoticed by the British government. Once they got wind of it, they sent the Prussian ambassador packing. Because, again, it was illegal. When you do illegal things, you get in trouble. Diplomatic immunity only takes you so far. He wasn't all roses for Kirkman, though. As soon as he got on the ship to Prussia, he was tied down and bound. Apparently, they figured he'd tried to escape once he found out what his fate really was. He'd accidentally sold himself into slavery. They paid him a pretty penny for himself, but it was still an unpleasant road ahead. We already mentioned the low spirits among the tall guys, but it wasn't just a matter of indignity. There were deeper issues that led to the poor morale. The Prussian military in general had a morale problem. Life was Spartan and the conscription periods were long. The pay wasn't great either. The result was suicide being a bigger killer than the enemy some years. Another killer was their comrades who had to execute deserters. Another cause of depression. The Longfellows got the worst of it. Some claim the king even put some of them on stretchers to try and make them longer still. He, was also forced, uh, he also forced some of them to marry tall women in hopes of breeding even taller children, which, as you know, isn't really how things work, but he didn't know that because, once again, he was crazy. And the lifeguards were lifers. Unlike the rest of the army, they could never retire. They had to stick around until dismissed or dead. There was no third option. Sure, there were some benefits from being in the tall guys. You could get uh, land apportioned to you, and better pay than the average soldier, but those were just consolation prizes. You were still a really tall person forced to march the gardens and play soldier for the amusement of an insane king with purple urine. Kirkman, through it all, somehow kept his sanity. Maybe that huge payday kept him warm at night. He apparently was allowed to keep the money, which is a very German way of going about things, I think. One, negotiate a price to basically buy a guy from himself. Two, lie to him about the work he's going to do. Three, hit him over the head and kidnap him in case he escapes. And four, pay him the agreed sum. He became something of a mascot for the unit, being the subject of a portrait and is mentioned in a poem by fellow Irish conscript and disgraced friar turned traveling poet, fascinating story in his own right, Thomas O, well it's Irish, Kayside. I forgot to check the pronunciation, I don't speak Irish. Frederick Wilhelm I died in 1740. By that time, he had 4,000 giants in his toy box. His successor, Frederick the Great, was a bit saner and a load more ambitious. Freddy, as no one called him, is often called an enlightened despot. That means he didn't play favorites. Everyone was equally mistreated. Frederick had a world to conquer, so he wasn't going to waste money on a bunch of ineffective soldiers. He reassigned members of the Novelty Regiment and allowed them to retire if they wished. For some, it was a relief. Others, it was devastating. The more handicapped had relied on the structure of the military to feed and house them. Now, they had to rely on Prussia's progressive yet meager poor relief. Kirkman, though, grabbed his freedom by the trunk like a wild elephant. Which is to say, he grabbed it with reckless abandon and no idea what was to come next. Now fluent in German, he went into business. What kind of business? It's actually unclear. Uh, The biographies about him are, well, they're not thorough. And he seems to have been pretty good at it. Within some years, he was a member of Frederick's court, a rare honor for someone with no aristocratic connections. There's something morbidly hilarious about this whole situation. The mad king, the unquestioning servants who would enslave mentally challenged people rather than disappoint their monarch, the bizarre scene it must have created. But of course, it was still a terrible sentence in spite of the, well, the dark humor of it. It destroyed men's dignity and drove many to self-destructive behaviors, and a few to actual self-destruction. The ones that made it out alive were tough cookies and Kirkman managed to thrive afterwards, a testament to his personal fortitude. It makes you wonder what would have happened to him if he'd never been shanghaied. He clearly had drive and intelligence, judging by where he ended up. He negotiated a great deal, few others could, and then, when he got fired from his job, turned that into an opportunity to become even richer and more successful. I come back around to the basketball comparison in my mind. Nobody becomes mega rich off sports alone. Even the guys who make hundreds of millions of dollars lose a lot of it by the time they retire. Agents, taxes, and family responsibilities, not to mention youthful imprudence, eat up a lot of their cash. Even though they are supposed to be millionaires, a surprising amount lose all or most of their money once they get into the, you know, the private sector, the real world. Now, it's not a perfect comparison between the lifeguards and the NBA. Obviously, you know while the NBA's labor relations aren't great, they didn't, they don't enslave anybody, and while the contracts are restrictive, they are not there for life. But still, there's a comparison to be made there. Some ex-players look upon retire, or some players, I should say, look upon retirement with fear, whereas others see it as an opportunity. With their new, abundant free time, they go into business or broadcasting. They become coaches and trainers. They take what they have and turn it into something more. Some of them even end up being brands in their own right. Others, well, they struggle. They miss the structure and the fulfillment of the game, of always having something to look forward to the next game on the schedule or opening day during the offseason. Kirkman was like the Michael Jordans of the Shacks. He didn't coast after retirement. He kept striving and reaching, just in a different way. And that's what great people do. They take what they're given and make a life from it, seemingly ex nilo. Kirkman took his height and subsequent kidnapping and turned it into a successful career far from home. He made sure that he was more than just an Irish giant. Thank you very much for listening to Persona. For more information about the Potsdam Giants, please visit my website, jasperhudson.com, for a bibliography for this episode, as well as some extra information that I didn't fit in. While you're there, you can also buy my book, Ireland's Forgotten County, A Guide to Donegal. It's a sort of a travel book about the county I live in, and some of the interesting sites I've come across while living here. Next week's person is Countess Maria von Maltzen, a noblewoman, veterinarian, and member of the German resistance. Please tune in.